Dominic Miller, is riding his own wave of success. Although he's been Sting's primary guitarist since 1990, Miller is clearly a musician who has made his mark on delivering his own sound, while bringing a wide breadth of cultural experiences to the collaboration table. He was born in Buenos Aires, Argentina, spending his first 10 years there. He and his family then relocated to Racine, Wisconsin, where he continued his interest in the guitar with a little encouragement from one of his older sisters. He had found his passion. He went on to study music formally in the U.S. and also in England, where he met other musicians who would become lifelong collaborators, such as Mike Lindup of Level 42. After playing in various groups during his teens and beyond, his first real break came when he worked on Phil Collins' But Seriously album. That was all it took for Sting to take notice of his extraordinary guitar playing and sound. Before long, Sting's Soul Cages album was released, and Miller was launched into the global spotlight as a serious player. As one who has a passion for Brazilian, Spanish, and classical music, Miller still finds time for self-expression, with his own solo work that is expressive, yet technical. Inside Music Cast welcomes Dominic Miller. Hey, Dominic, thanks for joining us today. Hey, how you doing? Good, good. Welcome. Hey, I want to start the interview off by uh, not asking a question about you, per se, but but rather your sister, Julie, who, who you have claimed to be the most influential person in your career. And give us some insight into your relationship with <laughs> Julie and how she convinced you to start playing the guitar when you were, I think you were only eight years old. Oh. Huh. Yeah, well, oh, that's that's going back. So you're really starting at the top. Okay? <laughs> yeah, I mean... Um, at the bottom, so, whichever. <laughs> you know, obviously, uh, big sister, you know, you kind of look up to any sibling, especially your older siblings. And um, she used to play guitar. You know, I was eight years old. I was just completely blown away with... Mm-hmm how she could play guitar, and mm-hmm. um, basically I needed to have some of that, so she got me started, and she kept getting better and better at it, and then she started learning um, uh, kind of jazz chords and bossa nova and things like that, so I, I had to learn that too. So she, yeah, she's the one who I blame for, for getting <laughs> me into this mess, <laughs> you know, of playing music, and, right. um, and it's interesting with my sister, because obviously I love her very much, but... But, you know, she's been following my career ever since. And um, whenever I do a gig and she's in the audience, I'm always very nervous when she's in there because I feel like she's kind of watching me. Like She's like my big sister, you yeah, know. It's like yeah. she's, I always just get a little nervous when she's around. <laughs> That's funny. Well, you know, you were surrounded by music just within your family, you know, growing up. And I think, I think I'd read that, you know, you had three older sisters and they all played guitar and your mom was a pianist. And Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it was a little bit like we were like the Partridge family, I suppose. That <laughs> um, we weren't traveling, although we were traveling a lot. But, you know, I mean, it was just a very talented family. My, none of them were professional, but my father was a keen blues player and... Um, mm-hmm. Tangos, because I was brought up in South America, so he right. was playing tango music, and mm-hmm. my mother's Irish, uh, British Irish, so she was always playing folk songs, and you know, like b- being brought up in the '60s, I was listening to the Stones, the Beatles, and you know, it's just such an incredible soundscape of music, you know, that I don't think anyone right. else had the same kind of influences. Yeah, exactly. But a lot of Latin American music was kind of part of the soundscape of my of my childhood. Sure, sure, sure. To samba music and. Uh, Brazilian music and you right. know, just everything. It's, it's so rich. It's very so, lucky. It is. Um, so can I assume, or did you learn a little bit of Spanish? Uh, do you speak Spanish, Dominic? Yeah, I speak fluently. I mean, fluently. Of course, uh, the, my, the first 11 years of my life were in Spanish. Perfecto. Hablas el español. That's wonderful. Claro que sí, señor. <laughs> That's neat. We should do another interview in Spanish <laughs> for our Latin, uh, Latin American listeners later on. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah. Well, no, you're touching on, uh, you know, the, the just the richness of what the South American vibe and 
and the the Latin American music. You've you know you've sort of embraced that. You've carried that with you everywhere that uh, that you've gone. How has that South American sort of um, the feel and how have you uh, embedded that in, into music? Well, it's not really a conscious effort. That's just the way I hear music yeah, with a okay. certain kind of a pulse mm-hmm. and a certain syncopation or anticipation of beat. Right. And even when I'm playing rock or even classical, whatever I'm playing, I feel I have that sort of uh, feeling. Mm-hmm. If you listen to, a, let's say, a, a classical guitarist in South America versus a classical guitarist in Germany or America or, or Britain, mm-hmm. there's a total difference in the way that they play. Even Absolutely. though they're playing the same piece of music, there's a kind of joyousness uh, with the South American way, mm-hmm. which is not necessarily better because I also like a pure way of playing where there isn't a groove. I'm not demeaning playing straight and without groove. I'm not saying that that's how you have to play. Right. But that's just the way people play music in South America, same way that they play soccer with a different kind of tempo. Yes. There's a different tempo and a different, the way they walk, the way they talk, and the way they just hang out with each other has a different beat. And that's been very influential in everything that I do. And it's not consciously, but... As I've got further in my career, I realize that I probably am doing that a lot more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, you, you eventually migrated, of course, uh, to uh, to Wisconsin here in the States, of yeah. which you were only here just for a couple of years. Then you moved over, of course, to a more uh, a lengthy residence in, in London. You know, tell yeah. us about these migrations as to what what you might have absorbed each each place. Well, I mean, moving to America was the best thing that ever happened to me. I was 11 years old and I moved to Wisconsin. I mean, I didn't know America, really. I mean, yeah. uh, just because my father got a job, though, that's why we moved. Yeah. He got a job. So I'm 11 years old, and I moved to Racine, Wisconsin, which is the middle of the Midwest. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it's real America that we're talking. You know, this is real, you know, you, in between Chicago and Milwaukee. Yeah. You can't get more American than that. No. Really, I don't think. No. And uh, it was just a fantastic move, that. And obviously around that age, 11 and 12, I was very impressionable, you know. It was the first time I listened to soul music, like real soul music, other than, you know, what I'd heard in South America, which is just what we were fed, you know, which is mostly kind of, I suppose, Jackson 5 or... Uh, yeah. Not very much, other mm. than that, you know. Right. But going moving to America, listening to real soul music and listening to real singer-songwriter music coming up like Carol King or mm-hmm. um, Carly Simon or James Taylor and all this kind of stuff... That was just, you know, for me, by then I already knew I wanted to be a musician. So I sort of felt that every move that I made was kind of part of that. Right, right. And um, I was absorbing the Americana feel of of everything and the American approach. There were other people playing music around me. And that's when I started playing a little bit more seriously. I, I still wasn't sure I wanted to be a musician, but I was sure that I really loved this. And... Yeah, moving to the States was probably the best thing that happened to me. Yeah. You were quite young also when you arrived at Berkeley in Boston, I guess around 16. Uh, how, yeah. how, how long were you there? I was just there for like two months. I was there for oh, one of those long okay. summer programs. I see. I didn't, I didn't, you know, I was a kid, and I, I guess my parents just thought, what are we going to do with this kid? He's going <laughs> music. So I just, they just <laughs> packed me up and sent me off to, to Berkeley, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Not a bad place to go, though. No. Yeah, it was great. I mean, that was the turning point for me. That's when I, I, there was no looking back after that. Right, exactly. You also studied music at uh, the Guildhall School of Music yeah. in, in London. What, was this when you studied with uh, violinist uh, Nigel Kennedy and, and Mike Lindup? 
Yeah, actually, Nigel Kennedy wasn't at the Guildhall, but I met him through contacts from the Guildhall. Mm-hmm. I see. Yeah, Mike Lindup was there. He was there with me, and he went on to form Level 42. Right. I was in the original Level 42 lineup. Actually. That's right. That's yeah, right. You were. And we were rehearsing, and then, you know, just a bunch of kids rehearsing in a rehearsal room. And, and uh, I guess I, I really wasn't that into it. So, you know, it, it was fun, but I, well, I was into sort of different style of music then, really. And um, so I didn't go with that, but then they went on to be incredibly successful. And <laughs> yeah. I felt a little bit hard done by, but I made up for it in the end, you know. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, I'm still friends with all those guys, like with Mark King as well. He played on one of my records. Mm-hmm. I played on a few Level 42 records as a session guy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, over the years, I mean, it's like family. Once The thing about being a musician is when you meet a musician and you work with them, you're family forever. You never lose touch. You know, we've had Mark on the show talking about his music, and uh, and it's just interesting. He seems like the kind of guy that you just want to, you know, go chill out with and relax with and talk. I mean, he's so funny, so energetic. I mean, the guy's pure fun, you know? Yeah, he's amazing. <laughs> amazing character, amazing musician, and he's got a great work ethic. He's a good family man. He's everything. You know, he's a brilliant guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hey, aside from the uh, musical institutions you attended, tell us about the uh, musicians that had an impact on you when you were young, that was making an impact on you as a young musician? Well, I mean, a a big turning point for me was around the time that, just before I moved to Argentina and I arrived in America, listening to Jimi Hendrix. Gotcha. When I heard Jimi Hendrix play the guitar, I just thought, what the hell is that? (laughs) You know, I've never heard anything like it. I didn't see him, I didn't see any clips of him, I just heard some records that my next-door neighbor played, and I thought, Jesus, what is this? I've never heard guitar played like that. Right. And that was just like a religious experience for me. And, um, you know, obviously, I thought I would need to learn how to play properly. And so, I mean, he's kind of, I think I'm still on that quest. I mean, I, of yeah. course I am. Jimi Hendrix set the bar that all of us have been trying to reach ever since. Yeah. And none of us have done it. Some have come close, like Jeff Beck and... Um, you know, um, obviously Stevie Ray Vaughan is a great kind of was a great Hendrix mimic in a way, and Robin Trower and some great great players. But he set the tone. He made it possible to play guitar in in an in a very original yeah. way, the same way that the Beatles made it possible for anyone to write songs. Yeah, that's what Sting would say. You know what I mean? It's like mm-hmm. they opened the floodgates. Hendrix opened the floodgates for guitar players. And when I heard Hendrix, that was a big turning point. And of course, listening to the Beatles, great songwriting. Sure. And when I, at a young age, listening to great songwriting like Stevie Wonder, I mean, the, just mind-blowing uh, prowess mm-hmm. of musicianship and songwriting and instrumentalism and all that kind of thing. It, just, it was very impressionable to me at that time. Mm-hmm. You know, we had, um, you're familiar with Steve Lukather? Yeah. <laughs> well, we had him on the show uh, earlier in the year, and, and one of the questions he, he sort of posed, he said, you know, kind of like along the lines of what you just said about Hendrix, it's, it's like, who, yeah. who's, who is the next young, great, you know, guitarist, or, right. or any musician for that matter, but he was mainly speaking of guitarists, that is going to come out and reinvent the instrument, that's going to do what Jimi Hendrix did and totally turn the guitar world upside down, you know? Well, no one's done it yet. Yeah, yeah no one. <laughs> I mean, Jeff Beck, in a way, has kind of done it. He's, yeah. But, you know, he's more of a stylist, Jeff Beck. You know yeah, what I mean? Right. He has one kind of, he has his sound. and Whereas Hendrix had such a broad palette of sounds mm-hmm. and, and feelings. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember you're talking about you know, different ways of, 
of uh, of technical approaches towards playing the guitar. I remember in the it must have been the late '80s, early '90s. Remember when Stanley Jordan came around and he started, yeah. you know, hammering with his fingers and he was playing the melodies and the and, and, and it was that that was one one short era that I it just amazed me as to holy cow how this how he is playing. Yeah, it was amazing. I mean, um, yeah. you know, but I mean, there was a different kind of version of what Eddie Van Halen was doing, right? Mm-hmm. Who I consider probably one of the most important guitarists to have come out of America. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not just because of all his hammering on techniques, but he was he's really one of the best. Mm-hmm. I'd put him in my top five for mm-hmm. sure mm-hmm. of what he achieved. But yeah, Stanley Jordan and there's a lot of people who've come around to do amazing things on a guitar like tapping and sure. all this kind of stuff. Actually it's very vogue right now <laughs> with a lot of acoustic guitar players yeah. to do all kinds of stuff on a guitar, you know, like Tommy Emmanuel, all these guys and there's a, quite a few of them in Italy and around Europe who tap, they play, they play harmonics, open tunings, they kind of play percussion on the guitar, they twist it, they turn it. But, right. you know, I think great, but that's it's still quite uh, shallow in a way because, you know, if I want to hear percussion, it's uh, I would rather hear a percussionist. You know, <laughs> it doesn't sound good on a guitar. And, exactly. you know, it kind of almost in a way devalues what percussion is. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? People yeah. who've invested their lives knowing what a groove is. So if I hear a guitar player doing all this incredible stuff on a guitar, mimicry and, you know, like playing three chords at once and playing, a, okay, so you're playing a melody and you're playing the chords at the same time. Right. But if you were to isolate the melody or isolate the chord, how good does it sound? Right. And so my thing is, okay, well, then get another guitar player. If you want to sound like two <laughs> guitar players, if I want to sound like two guitar players, I'll get my friend. Yeah. I've got a very good phone book. You know, <laughs> play guitar with me. That's right. You know what I mean? Yeah, I don't exactly. want to sh- show you that I can do it all. Right. And so, of course, Stanley Jordan, wow. I mean, wow is all I can say is what an amazing player. But, you know, I think he'd be happier if he got a, some, a couple of guys to join him. Yeah. Then he could just concentrate just on playing the melody as well as he could. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Well, you know, you became a pretty sought-after studio musician, you know, during this time, you know, when you joined, uh, you know, Level 42. I mean, even the Pretenders, Paul Young, Phil Collins, yeah. and, and just to name a few. But, you know, how was the transition for you going from a role of band member to, you know, to supporting other bands and musicians? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I never intended to be a, a, a mercenary, you mm-hmm. know, like a session player. I, I always thought when I was, you know, in my early 20s, or 19, 20, 21, I thought I was going to change the world and come and do something amazing. I was listening to John McLaughlin a lot and, and Aldo Miola and all these great guitar players, and right. I just thought, I'm going I'm to be a solo guitarist like that. But it didn't really work out that way for me. And one of the reasons is because I wasn't that good. I couldn't play that well, you know. So a big change for me was um, when I reached the age of 24. Is uh, uh, I had my first kid. Okay. And... Um, that was a big kind of a wake-up call for me. I thought, okay, well, enough trying to be the great Dominic Miller. Yeah. It's time to get a gig. Right. So that's when that's I, right. I just thought, okay, I'm going to get to work now. And, um, you know, that's when I started sessioning a lot. I don't know how it happened. I just All I did was I just accepted every band call that came my way instead of saying, no, I'm, I'm busy. Right. I just took yeah. everything that came my way, everything. Mm-hmm. And... Um, that culminated in working with many different people, and eventually it ended up working with Carl Wallinger from World Party. I mean, that was a huge uh, leap for me because he was a, 
it was a signed band, and right. we toured around America, around Europe, and that thing started getting serious. Uh-huh. And then the phone started ringing much more as a session player. Mm-hmm. And my clientele were really not musicians, but producers. Because I got a reputation for like being the guy that you call exactly. who could cover most any angle, because yeah. I played funk, jazz, you know, not nothing really particularly well, but I had this Latin side, I had the rock side, I had I was just a perfect kind of session player. Yeah, you can feel it. Yeah. Being a session player is a bit like being an actor, you know, you just got to put yourself in character. And I know how to put myself in character, and I still kind of do that today. You know, it's uh, it's, it's really fun. But, you know, I mean, I could talk about session playing all night, you yeah. know, I mean, uh, <laughs> what it means. Because my first real big break as a session player, let's be serious, was, was uh, when I met Phil Collins. Right, mm-hmm. right. You know, and that's when I suddenly realized how it, I just had to deconstruct everything I knew. Because really what session work really is about is taking away all your ego. And you've got to realize that this, it's not about you anymore. It's about the song. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's what real ninja playing is. Right. Like, all you've got to do is listen to someone like Pino Palladino right. to understand that. Mm-hmm. And um, whereas it's not about him. He just plays what is right for the song. Exactly. And I remember doing that with Phil Collins. I just thought, okay, this is how it is. It's just, just take away everything. Stop trying to impress anyone. Don't try and do anything that draws attention to itself. And just do what's right for the song. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that involves doing something incredibly simple. And I remember doing that with Phil Collins on Another Day in Paradise. Mm-hmm. Another Day in Paradise from the But Seriously album. Mm-hmm. I just right, was right. playing this silly arpeggio. And he said, yeah, that's it. And I was thinking, no, that's, of course that's not it. I can do something much more impressive than that. <laughs> but he said, no, I want that. Yeah. And I thought, really? And that's what ended up on the record. So, oh, sorry, I jumped the gun there a little bit. That's right. No, that's but, okay. But that hook was, you know, it, it was simple, right? Yeah, it was simple. And I've done... Some of the biggest records I've done have been very simple. Amazing. So as a session, when you're playing in a band, I mean, the message really is, is when you're playing in a band, you've really got to serve the music above anything else. Mm-hmm. It's more important than the artist. Mm-hmm. It's more important than, than the band itself. And it's certainly more important than you. Mm-hmm. What can you do to make this work? And it's, well, you know, I'm very influenced by watching, let's say, a good basketball team or a, or a soccer team. Uh-huh. It's like when they work together really well, that's right. really inspiring. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because in the end, they all win. Well, it was that album, the, uh, the But Seriously album uh, for Phil Collins that you were involved yeah. with. Um, that, was, that was, like you said, that was a big stepping stone in terms of the attention that you received as a, a studio musician. And yeah, was, I mean, yeah. that just opened the door. I mean, it is Catch-22, mm-hmm. this business, in a way, and let's all face it. You know, how do you get that first big gig? Well, I mean, I could tell you how I got there if you want to know, but, I mean, the thing is, once you get that gig, right. you've got to nail it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's not good enough just, you know, getting a gig or even getting signed to a label. You've like, you still got to do the business. You've got to deliver. And that's when the doors open and the phones uh, rang throughout the 90s. Mm-hmm. Well, it was, it was soon after that, though, after that you know, you know, session with Phil and, and that project, that that's, I think Sting took notice of your work and invited you to New York to, to jam that's with right, him. Is yeah. that right? Yeah. I mean, what happened is um, uh, Hugh Padgham was the producer. Right. He's one of, he was one of my great uh, clients throughout the 90s, as well as a few other producers. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, he said uh, to me, Sting's looking for a guitar player. And I thought, well, great, you know. And he said, he wants to try you out, you know, because you recommended me. 
So I, I flew to New York. But the complication I had at that time was that, you know, if you want to rewind a bit, I was in another band at the time called King Swamp that was signed with Virgin, okay. which was a Bob and produced album, okay. which not a lot of people know about, but, you know, he was in the studio with us for ages. Mm-hmm. And then I had a phone call from um, Chrissy Hind. Well, right. all I, had, I was in the studio with Bob Claremont with this small band I was in. Uh-huh. And uh, in the control room, uh, the con- engineer says, there's a, there's a call for you. It's Chrissy. And I thought, I don't know anyone called Chrissy. <laughs> and um, so I said, hello. And she said, hey, it's Chrissy Hind. And I went, fuck off. You know, excuse me. <laughs> don't be, you know, you can beep that. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, it's okay. <laughs> uh, I said, no way. It's not Chrissy Hind. And she said, yes, it is Chrissy Hind. And I said, well, wh- what can I do for you? And she said, a friend of mine saw you play at the Roxy last month and said that you were really good. I'm looking for a guitarist. Do you want to be in The Pretenders? <laughs> wow. And I'm looking around at my band members, sort of thinking, I can't believe what I'm hearing. Yeah, right. And, she, uh, and I said, well, maybe we should meet first. You know, I'd certainly like to get together with you and talk about it, but this comes as a bit of a surprise. And she said, no, it's okay, we don't need to meet. Do you want the gig, yes or no? <laughs> And I said, well, you haven't even met me. You don't even know what I sound like. She said, my friend will vouch for it. Obviously, her friend told her that this is your guy. I was playing a gig at the Roxy, which is only 100 yards from where I'm speaking to you now. Right. Holy cow. You know, and I thought, really? Uh, her friend saw me play at the Roxy, and she said, I, I want you to join the band. And um, I, I said, well, you haven't met me, and you haven't seen, you know, heard me play. <laughs> well, my friend has, and... Um, I said, well, I would like to meet you. So we agreed to meet, and we uh, met, and we spent about... So she, we got on really well. I didn't play for her. Uh, we just got on. Mm-hmm. And I was actually... Then I was in the band, <laughs> and I left the other band I was in. And um, then she, I'm just hanging out in the band. We didn't play any music for a month. Yeah, holy cow. I'm just going out shopping with her. I'm picking up her kids from school. I'm just in a band. <laughs> We're having cups of tea, listening to Iggy Pop, you know, and like doing all kinds of crazy shit. And just like, not everything except playing music. (laughs) It was the essence of rock and roll. We weren't in a rehearsal studio, and I thought something weird was going on. And then I remember at one point, uh, then she said, okay, we've got to go to the studio. We're going to record some songs. And I thought, thank God for that. She had Chad Blake and Mitchell Froome coming over to Abbey Road Studios. I thought, great, we're going to the studio. Wow, yeah. And she still hasn't heard me play. Not a note. <laughs> That's amazing. And I remember, uh, so we had the date for the studio set. So I will get back to your other question in a minute, by the it's way. Okay. That's okay. Right. This is great. Take it. So then we go, um, the studio set for a certain date at one o'clock. And then I go around to her house all excited, like from my first day of school. I've got, you know, my guitars are stringed up, tuned up and... Everything's ready. Yeah. And I get to a house, and what, we do, what do we do? We go out shopping again. We go out for lunch. <laughs> and we go out, and then we pick up her kids from school again. Oh, my gosh. And then we go back to her place, and, you know, and I'm thinking, Chrissy, uh, aren't we supposed to be in the studio? She said, yeah, well, you know, we'll, we'll arrive. Don't worry. So I'm just, like, sitting in her, I'm going around everywhere with her, you know, <laughs> just chatting, laughing, whatever. And then eventually we'd show up at the studio in the evening, Okay. And Mitchell Froome and Chad Blake are there waiting for us. Uh-huh. There's already been a backing track done that they had already done in L.A. Uh, with another drummer, uh, uh, whoever. And um, 
what happens next is Miss uh, is um, Chrissy gets behind the microphone. She says she arrives with her shopping bags and everything, and I'm like, oh, this is Dominic, and they go hi, 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 and I'm my my crew guys already set my stuff up, so all my stuff is set up now, and I'm thinking, okay, uh, so she gets behind the mic and she proceeds to sing a vocal for this one track called um, a real sense of purpose, a sense of purpose in one take. And I'm thinking, wow, <laughs> this is how it's done. Wow. And it wasn't like, you know, there was no question about it. Mm-hmm. That's, that was the take. Wow. And then she said, okay, Dom, it's your turn now. And so I'm thinking, wow. No pressure. This is the first time I've heard the song. Yeah. I've never heard anything, but I had a, I had a Telecaster. She let me use her Telecaster. I thought, I thought, had to think, what the hell am I going to do here? Yeah. So I had to think, you know, really logically. So I was listening to the track, thinking, I've got, there's a wide open space here. And I'm thinking, I've got to do something jangly, a bit birdsy. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's what I thought. Play something jangly, like arpeggio-y kind of. Yeah. So I started playing that, and it was perfect. And she didn't even respond. She was just doing her nails or something. She <laughs> wanted to get the hell out of the studio. <laughs> so she wasn't even listening to me, and she was in the control room. <laughs> she wanted to go shopping. Which suggested to me that I must have been doing the right thing as opposed to the wrong thing. I guess so. <laughs> so I did it, and then we went shopping. So, okay, so then I'm in the pretenders proper. And then I get this call to go to New York and hang out with Sting for an audition. Right. And this is all after I've already been seduced yeah. into being in a band. Okay. I felt there was a, that, that kind of honeymoon period. of, And I did really well, and then they asked me to go back to L.A. to uh, finish the album at A&M Studios here yeah. in L.A. And... Um, but then the only sidetrack was that Sting, Sting's people called me to go to SIR Studios in New York mm-hmm. and to have a jam. So I show up in New York, uh, knowing full well that in a week, a week later I timed it so that a week later I'm going to go to LA and finish Chrissy's record uh-huh. and just do the whole thing. And so I get to New York and I jam with Sting. Um, and, you know, we were jamming for about two hours or maybe three hours. It felt like a long time. And to cut a long story short, um, after an hour and a half or something, he said, okay, I want to have a word with you. And I thought, well, naturally, he's going to tell me just to thank you, but no thank you. Because <laughs> I didn't know any of his tunes. Right, right. recognize any of his songs. <laughs> I mean, I kind of recognized some of them, yeah. but I wasn't a Sting fan. Right. So, uh, except for Synchronicity, I sort of recognized that tune, Synchronicity yeah. too, so I had to come up with some other riff. And uh, a few other tunes. Uh, right. <laughs> and then he said, I want to talk to you. So we go into the back room. And he says, I want you to do this gig. And I thought, are you out of your mind? <laughs> <laughs> you know, are you sure, you, are you sure you're thinking straight? Because I didn't know any of his songs. But now I look back and I think, of course he asked me to join the gig because I was just playing purely on instinct. Yeah. I was and my instinct suited him. Yeah. Instead of showing up and knowing all his songs, I just came up with riffs that that felt right to me, and that's what he needed to hear. He wanted to hear that. He didn't want to hear somebody playing the riff the way it is on the record, because anyone can do that. Yeah. You know what I mean? Or a lot of people can. Come on, you know. Um, but it's coming up with the riff that he wants to hear. So he tested me. You know, the first thing we did was Ain't No Sunshine by Bill Withers. Right. Of course, I, yes. I knew that song. Yeah, a bluesy amazing, kind right? of feel. Yeah. And I jammed that fine. The next thing we did was Synchronicity. Uh-huh. 
two, which was kind of rocking and F sharp, and I came up with some kind of riff. Yeah. Then the next thing we did was like something that was out of Synclavier, which was like a muso kind of fuso uh, weather report E seven eight type workout. Yeah. And of, of course, I've been listening to that stuff all my life growing sure. up with that. Yeah. You know, I'm a, I'm a fuso as well. You know, I can, I can hang with that. Right. Uh-huh. So that was no problem. We did a few other jams, and then we did a song called Fragile, which right. was very easy for me because that's got that Latin American kind of feel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right, yeah. So basically, I covered all the angles. And then um, he gave me the gig. And so I'm really rambling here. I'm sorry. I'm that's sorry. okay. It's great. And, but then I went over to um, L.A. So he gave me the gig, and I said, well, that's great. Thank you very much. I have to think about it. And because um, I wasn't sure. I would just join the Pretenders. I was really seduced it's like you get a girlfriend you meet the girl of your dreams and then you meet another one you know what i mean right has that ever happened to you it hasn't happened to me in that context but i mean can you imagine if it did let's say you you really meet the 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 one the one and then the one comes along yeah you know unbelievable and so i went to la and finished Chrissy's record, I told, I, and uh, but I didn't really, I wasn't really straight with her about what was happening because she <laughs> wanted to know how did it go, and I went, well, I'm thinking about it, but yeah. so she was quite nervous about it. <laughs> so then I went home after that, and I had to make a decision. Well, she was going to lose her shopping partner. That's right. <laughs> yeah, she lost her shopping partner. So I called my manager. I had a manager at the time, and I said, "Can you? All right, I've thought about it. Can you please call Chrissy's and let them know I'm not doing. I can't do it. I'm going to do the Sting thing." And um, she said, no, I I don't want to, because she was managed by Gail Coulson then. And my manager said, no, I'm not calling Gail, because Gail is scary, and, you know, like, you call her. (laughs) I thought, and so then I thought, oh, God, I'm going to have to call Gail, who's a scary kind of manager. So I thought, okay, I I plucked up the courage. I called Gail. I said, Gail, I'm really sorry, but I'm not going to be able to do Chrissy's gig. And, Uh you know, I love you guys, and I have to say goodbye. And Gail said, I'm not telling Chrissy that. <laughs> you tell her. Right. And not right. me. And I thought, you, you're kidding me, right? So then I called Chrissy. And, uh, oh, God, it was awful. Wow. I can imagine. It's like breaking up with someone, you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Over the phone. Yeah. It was awful. So, yeah, sorry, I've been rambling there. No, no, it's okay. Well, I, I just, you know, I, I caught a couple of, of uh, Sting shows, you know, the, the Soul Cages tour. I think that's when you first joined the band. And um, one of the shows uh, was from the one of the shows I caught was from the second row, and my seat was positioned right between you and Sting, and that was the first time I had ever experienced your playing or, or even learned about you. But I remember walking away from the show that night, and I was completely impressed with with you. I mean, obviously, it's the first time I'd ever seen Sting in concert as well. But not only did I think that you know you were just an amazing guitarist, but I was. I was kind of blown away at how comfortable you looked on stage. Right. You know, each, each time I've seen you performing with Sting since, you just look as cool up there as, the, as that first time. And I, you just have a real sense of, of uh, comfort on, on stage. And it's mm-hmm. I just, you know, I'm always... Well, it's more with him than anyone else, actually. Because, I mean, yeah. I, I just feel like I recognize him as a person yeah. and as a musician. I feel safe working with him, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. It's like having an older brother who you feel safe with. Mm-hmm. It's that similar kind of dynamic. And um, I trust him you know, as a songwriter and as a singer. Even though we don't look at each other that much, I don't rely on eye contact with him. Right. I rely much more on instinct with him. And I feel that he makes me feel confident, you know, and relaxed. Because I totally get the way he's working. I love the way he works mm-hmm. and, um, and, and performs. Yeah. 
Mm. And, and, you know, unbeknownst to a lot of people, and I can tell you what he's like, is that he's really got the, uh, the hierarchy thing totally together mm-hmm. because he also recognizes that the song is king. Right, exactly. He doesn't put himself above that. Right. So he, he knows that his job is simply the, the front man. That's his job. We've all got a gig. This, you know, the lighting guy's got a gig. The, the truck driver's got a gig. Everyone is part of this. And his part just so happens to be the front man and the guy that does the interviews and the guy with the, the name on the record yeah. and the ticket. But that's all. Yeah. So he does his thing, and I do mine. Yeah. And he, it's great to work with someone who really understands that. Because yeah. when we're on stage, it really is a, it's, it's a democracy. You know, it's a, it's a co-op. Yeah. So tell me, how, how has, uh, you know, your role from the very beginning of working with Sting, you know, how has that sort of evolved, your role, over the 20 years uh, that you've, you know, been working with him? How has it evolved? Well, it's evolved and devolved, and it's like, uh, I mean, my role with him really, I equate to being, um, I mean, we've been together for 24 years right. now. I mean, it's, it's yeah. ridiculous. I mean, but, and we're not done yet. I think... Yeah. Uh, at first, my role was more prominent because we didn't really know each other that well. And it's like, if I want to use the analogy of in relationships, you know, you just still finding each other for the first few years. And then you get to know each other. You sort of settle down a bit and you rely less on each other. And so he's, but the first couple of albums like Soul Cages and Ten Summoners Tales, it was very much him and me that put those records together. Right. And the, the arrangements and the kind of production values. And then he kind of, tried different things because, you know, I was sort of safely uh, ingrained in the music and he, I had less of an active role. It was just like, you do your thing and, and you, he trusts me. Yeah. So it's like he never really told me what to play. He only ever told me what not to play. Mm-hmm. You know, but I'm really kind of like the sofa in the band, the old <laughs> sofa. You know, you can't get rid of me. You, know, you can put me, you know, whatever you do with me, I'll be back. You right. know, right. you can put me in storage like you did during the police years, and and then it comes out again, put a different cover on. You know? I'll be back, same old cover. And um, you know, you never know what you find under those cushions. You know what I mean? <laughs> Well, you know, your, your situation with Sting reminds me a lot of one of our past guests, uh, John Harrington, his scenario with Steely Dan. And he's he's been with Steely for over 13 years now and has evolved to be, you know, the band's music director uh, when they go out on tour. And he's also performed on the band's past couple of albums. And so I'm just thinking, you know, during this run that you've had with Sting, has there ever been a time when you felt like you'd like to move on to explore other opportunities? Or is this gig just too good to walk away from? Oh, yeah, sure, of course there has. And I think that's what keeps a relationship healthy. Yeah. It should be the same in a marriage. You know, mm-hmm. you can't right. say to each other, it is for keeps, absolutely, and that's it. There's got to be the opportunity or the notion that it, you could walk away. Mm-hmm. And that's what keeps it exciting, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, And it's like being married to a wife, you know. You can't say you're never. I, I would never say I, I am never going to leave you because I might. You mm-hmm. know what I mean. Mm-hmm. And um, so, yeah, sure, there have been times when I've thought, you know, I wonder if Bruce will call me up. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Right. There's certain people who, who, if they did call, I would be tempted. Oh right. And he's sure. one of them. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and uh, and a few others I can imagine, but mm. uh, you know. He's such a great guy to work with that I can't imagine a better gig. Yeah. I really, I have, I've got the best gig in the world. Right. Because I get to play the way I want to play, mm-hmm. and I get to play different styles. I'm not playing just one style. Yeah, that's true. And that was really yeah. the reason why I left The Pretenders, is because I somehow knew 
that it wasn't, it didn't have a broad stylistic range. It was just one thing, which was elegant rock and roll music. And that was it. Yeah. I might end up getting bored with that. <laughs> but we have elements of, uh, of jangly, pretendery type. Actually, you know, the first, one of the first songs I did in Soul Cages uh, was All This Time. And uh, if you listen to the guitar part on yeah. All This Time, it's very, very, on the, it was very much on the back of playing with the pretenders. The jangly part that I play yep. is very pretendersy. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to put that in that song. Yeah, it's a very arpeggiated. It could be. I could have done the same thing with the Pretenders. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. With Chrissy, you know, and so really, it's all about style. And one of the reasons why I can't find a better gig than Sting is because I don't think I'll find anything that's as interesting as that, or as challenging, or as risk taking. Yeah. You know, we've done some projects and some albums that people really don't like, and even sometimes I question. I might think, well. We could have done better than that. But, you know, he's a guy who doesn't mind failing, and that's why I admire him. He's mm-hmm. not sticking to a format. That's right. He's putting, yeah. his, he's putting his bollocks on the table every time he does a record, <laughs> mate. You know what I mean? True. That's true. <laughs> and, you know, the critics do have a go at him. But, you know, what should he do? Should he just do the same thing every time? I don't think so. I'd rather be hanging out with someone who's taking risks, who wants to sail to unknown waters, you know what I mean? Right. Into the wind. Mm-hmm. Right. As opposed to just, you know, just playing it safe. Mm-hmm. So really, to answer your question, yeah, I have been tempted, and yeah, sure, I do. I have a solo career that I navigate as well, but it's you know, it's a hobby. Mm-hmm. I do two or three months a year with that if I'm lucky. But you know, sure, I mean, all of us would like to have our own go solo and do our own thing. Of course, we'd like to do that. But mm-hmm. I wouldn't. I really enjoy playing with Sting, and I, you know, come on, mate. You know, the musicians I'm hanging out with, like Vinnie Colaiuta, you know, know, David Sanchez, hello, you know what I mean? It's not shabby. <laughs> right. You think I don't learn from Vinnie Colaiuta and all these guys? I mean, it's incredible what I've learned. Yeah. They're in the same, uh, you know, same type of category when you said, you know, they're, they're just one-call um, musicians. They, people know when to call because they can play the part. I mean, Vinnie can play anything, anything. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and all these guys can. Their character, they, they, they get it. And they're egoless. None of these people have an ego. Mm-hmm. You know, when you get to the high, to the top, this sort of elite musicianship, that's the one thing that I find in common is that it's totally egoless. Yeah. It's not, no one ever plays for themselves. Right. They always play for the commonwealth. You know what I mean? That's it's, right. It's all for one, one for all. I mean, mm-hmm. that's just, these guys personify that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, that's what elite playing is. And I'm in awe when I listen to that level of musicianship. Yeah. You know, like we had Keith Carlock with us in the band for a while. Oh, yeah. He was also another Steely Dan guy who's been with him for a fair while as well. Right. He's incredible. You know, and but, you know, that didn't really suit Sting, that style of playing, because, yeah. you know, he, he's more into that crazy kind of Manu Kache uh, <laughs> sort of uh, yeah. Omar Hakim, you know, Vinny kind of wildness. But yeah. Keith yeah. is one of the best drummers yeah. I've ever, ever worked with. And what an amazing experience that was for me. Yeah. You know it's, what I mean? Yeah. He's and, got it's you know, such the, great... The list, I could just talk all night about <laughs> the people that I've worked with yeah. in Sting's band. But like I said, I am the sofa. You know, I'm, <laughs> the, the attention's never really on me, but I get to work with all these people. And I'm sort of part of that, the, uh, his sound. Yeah. And I, and I kind of, I, I have to accept that. I'm in the family, you know? And whether you love me or hate me, you know, I'm still a family member, and he can hate me or love me. And sometimes we don't get on. You know, it's true. Yeah. Sometimes he gets bored with my playing, or but I am part of that sound. Right. 
he can't get rid of me. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, you mentioned something, Dominic. You mentioned something that, uh, um, you know, th- that sound. I want to talk about a little bit about influences. You know, me and Rick, before we chatted with you, we started talking, wondering who's influencing who or you f- influencing each other. We see some of you pouring out into what Sting's doing and the stuff that he's doing. It has some of what you're doing. And talk about the, the ping-ponging of influencing between you and Sting. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'm very influenced by him. I and mean, what I get most from him is his incredible uh, ability to think lateral when it comes to making music. You know, he has an amazing ability to to do the chord that you wouldn't do, you know, that's actually kind of wrong or dissonant. Mm-hmm. I mean, a good example of that, let's say a basic example of that is every breath you take mm-hmm. is basically, I mean, the, the chord sequence is the same as the chord sequence of Stand By Me. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Except he goes to an F sharp. Okay. Which is, is completely changes it. And I love that way he does. And I love the way he arranges. His sense of arrangement, uh, of song arrangement, is conventional, yet it's unconventional. You yeah. Know? yeah. It's, it's so, uh, you know, he does follow certain rules. It's good to follow the, the rules of, of, uh, of form. It's really good to know the rules of form. It's like being an architect. It's really good to know the about engineering. You can't be an architect un- unless you understand engineering, or else you'd be building these buildings that would fall over. You know what I mean? And Sting kind of has an instinct, a uh, natural instinct for that that's been very influential to me. Mm-hmm. And from my side to him, I would say what I offer him is I offer him so many uh, choices with um, character. Like I might start playing in a completely different style than the one he's playing in, mm-hmm. and that will inspire him. And he, yeah. just to show him that anything goes, it's like pl- speaking in a different accent, right? Yeah. You know, or or, com- or being comic when it's, something's quite serious, no. mm-hmm. or being serious when something's quite comic. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, I can do that for him. I think he's been influenced that maybe a bit, and also, you know, it's true that when you when you are best friends with someone. You, you do pick up each other's kind of uh, dialogue. You've probably experienced that in college, you know what I mean? Yeah. You're, you're best mates with someone, you start talking like each other. <laughs> That's right. You know what I mean? Or you're into the same stuff, or you sort of, you see things the same way, you telepathize, you sort of right. look at a, someone walk in, you, you both worked out exactly what you both think of that person, you know? Yeah, and we have that. And it's just, then it turns into telepathy, and it turns into, it's almost psychic stuff but you know um <laughs> i can read him you know and sometimes it's amazing you know because we're on stage sometimes and we both make the same mistake at the same time <laughs> amazing i mean what the hell is that about right exactly and you know really very often i can feel him where he's going to go with an arrangement which is not the arrangement that we arranged mm-hmm, mm-hmm, i can feel that he's going to go to the chorus early i can just sense it yeah. and he does yeah. <laughs> exactly and i'll go there that's interesting. Hey, Dominic and Eddie, let's take uh, another break, and let's go back to 2010 when Dominic released his solo project titled November, and let's check out a track called Ripped Nylon. Thank you. 
You know, I want to talk a little bit about your your solo work in which you've just mentioned a couple minutes ago that you hardly have any time to even address that part of your life. But you you do have a lot of neat, beautiful recordings. And over this past week, Rick and I have been sort of been absorbing, you know, and, and uh, you, you know, your solo work. Um, for instance, you know, when I when I hear your 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 first project in 93, which is called First Touch, you know, the, yeah. tr- the tracks contained have so much feeling, but at the same time, they're really very technical. So my question is this, you know, is there a way that you can describe for us and our, our listeners, um, you know, the blending of both the feel and the technical, because you are a very technical player. Or how, how does well, this happen? Well, thank you, but I yeah. wouldn't say that I'm a technical player. For me, uh, sound is number one. Mm-hmm. It's developing a sound. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, composition is a whole other thing. But, I mean, let's talk about sound for a second. I mean, a lot of people say to me that they want to get their own sound. And I say to them, well, the best way to try and get your own sound is to not try and get your own sound. Right. Just play. <laughs> Just play. Yeah. I don't think Jeff Beck wakes up in the morning and thinks, I want to sound like Jeff Beck. He just sounds like Jeff Beck. Right. You're not trying to. But, you know, as soon as you try and get your own identity, because everyone wants their own signature or identity, as soon as you try and do that, um, you're not, you're not going to make it. It's not going to happen like that. It's like being an art student and going straight to cubism. Mm-hmm. You know, right. I don't think that... I mean, well, I know that Picasso didn't go straight to Cubism. It, there was a journey that got him there. And then he ended up seeing things just in that way. And I think that's the thing with sound and technique, is you've got to... Um, just do it slowly, dude. You know, just go... Take it easy, and you sound, the sound and the identity will come to you. Right. Trust me on that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, really, stop trying to get your own identity now. A lot of music students do that, you know. They want to do their own thing and be to be original. But yeah, sure, it's interesting and original. But it's does it tr- does it kind of uh, connect with other people? So really, for me, sound is king, and just practicing really hyper slowly, and just just to get a sound. I mean, mm-hmm. to make it sound good, what do you have to do? You have to right. play nearer the sound hole or exactly. near the bridge. Are you using nails? Are you not using nails? Are you just le- letting us? Is it important to you? You know, yeah. some people it isn't very important, but I think it's important to some of the people that we've mentioned. You know, mm-hmm. like well, Pat Metheny, and you know, right? Um, well, I mean, he, for him, sound is important. For John McLaughlin, for all these great players, it's important. Yeah, Lindsey Buckingham gets a great sound. Mm-hmm. Yes, Why does. does he get a great sound? It's just he just does. <laughs> you know, and um, composition is just really like I said. I'm influenced by the people I work with. And um, it's just, I like the rules of harmony, and I like the rules of form, mm-hmm. and then I like to twist them around a bit, which has been influenced by Sting. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the sessions that I've done, I love working with great people mm-hmm. and making things simple and not to complicate arrangement too much. I think when I'm making instrumental records, I don't want to jam. I'll do that on the gig. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. why a lot of my tunes are only <laughs> three or four minutes, because yeah. right? yeah. they're like short songs, because I'm influenced by songs. Right. They really like songs, but without lyrics. But I don't believe that they're they're lacking in any narrative. I think there certainly is a narrative, and I want the listener to make up their mind what that narrative might be. Sure, yeah, sure. Exactly. And that's the beauty of instrumental music. Well, as we as we talk about your your solo work and some of these projects, I wanted to interject uh, a question about your writing process and 
you know, how do you write? I mean, do you, do you capture riffs or melodies and hooks? Uh, like, you know, you're, you're on the road a lot, and uh, obviously. And do you do this as you travel? I mean, are you, are you putting stuff down on digital recorders? and I mean, or do you only write at your home studio? Tell us about... No, it does. I mean, there's, a, there's a many ways. Yes. Yeah. Sometimes, I mean, I am on the road about 10 months a year, let's face it. So yeah. I do end up writing stuff on the road. But usually, it's just a happy accident. But, you know, this yeah. is a... You know, I just get something that falls on my lap. I'll just be sitting watching CNN or something with my guitar, and I'll just be playing around, and something just, I'll go, what the hell is that? <laughs> yeah. You know, like you would. If you heard <laughs> right. someone play or you heard me play, you'd say, what is that? Well, yeah. And I would go, I don't know. That's how Shape of My Heart was written. Sting said, what is that? Yeah. And then um, I, I just said, well, it's just a riff, you know. Right. But anyway, uh, so that's what usually happens is I get an idea and it's usually just the combination of two chords next to each other. There's a kind of a contrast or, of color. And I think, wow, I love the, love the contrast between these two chords. So then I have a choice. I have a choice. What do I do? Do I just keep repeating that, put a drum machine on it, and just like r- write a song on it? Or is that just a clue to a much bigger picture? And I've, I would go the latter. I think it's a clue. It's like doing a crossword puzzle. It's just one across. Yep. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, exactly. And then I've got to do the rest. So, the, you know, I don't believe in God necessarily, but if, let's say if one did, that God gave me the answer for one across. And so what do I have to do? I've got to, fin- I've got to honor that. I need to honor that gift. And that can take a lot of work. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I want to do the journey. I want to go on this journey. And so my, I might work backwards and think, what does, do these two chords mean to me? So I'll just go forward, sideways, and end up playing chords I've never played before. Because people ask me, oh, with all the chords, you know? I mean, it's like, what, <laughs> how do you work with them? I don't, have, I don't work like that. Yeah. I just find shapes and chords that suit the music. Exactly. Or I might detune the guitar in a different way that will suit the kind of notes, the kind of notes that I want to get. But um, I think really uh, good writing or writing when, it, when I'm when it works for me is when I've had a bit of inspiration, which is a gift, uh-huh. for free, You're right. and then I have to do the work. And I love going through the work process mm-hmm. and um, getting, going off in different keys and ending up at home. And that takes a bit of knowledge, you know. Sure, I've got to use my head sometimes. Yeah. You know, like how would I get from this chord to that chord right. without, and what, what journey could I take? Mm-hmm. So really, that's what it is. And it's also partly just opening the windows to, to um, inspiration and asking questions. The best way to get an idea for something or for an idea for a melody is usually just to not make any sound whatsoever. Yeah, exactly. I might be driving in my car with the radio off and nothing playing and, and be thinking this music in my head, obsessing about it. <laughs> and it'll come to me. Yeah. Then I'll rush back to my instrument and see if that, if, the, if that idea actually works. Yeah, exactly. So you've really got to kind of converse with your kind of higher power in a way. Don't just throw notes and guesswork and just throw stuff around, you know. And don't do too many solos, you know. It's like solos are for gigs. Right. <laughs> exactly. Right. Hey, you, you uh, in, in your first works, you know, they, they comprise projects called First Touch and Second Nature, New Dawn, 
in yeah. Third World. But but right after Third World, you 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 recorded an album that was sort of interesting. It was called Shapes in uh, in two thousand four, I believe. Both uh, Third World and Shapes came out the same year. Yeah. But uh, this was completely a classical production with the you know London Session Orchestra performing behind you. But yeah. you played purely uh, classical music from Bach, Satie. Huh. Uh, well, that was an opportunity, basically. I mean, uh, I had a major label approach me, mm -hmm. saying, would you do this? And I went, are you kidding? I went, you want me to play a classical record? Right. You're out of your mind? <laughs> yeah. And, um, so I just, no, they said, we'd like you to do it. And so I said to them, I'll do it on the, I had a condition, if you just let me treat this music as if it were like, you know, written last week. Right. Mm -hmm. So they said, yeah, just whatever you want. You know, just let's see what you come up with. So I called my friends up, Pino Palladino and a few other... Richard Cott, or people I know who I've done sessions with. Mm -hmm. And I just said to him, look, these are the chords, this is the melody, and how do you hear it? You know what I mean? But I made arrangements of very well-known classical tunes, um, and I just, that was, that suited me for now. Yeah. And it was just an opportunity, mate. You know, like, they, well, you know, it was a, I'd never done a, a record for a major label before, and actually that's my best-selling record. Sold 140,000 albums, you know I mean? Yeah. It wasn't shabby at all, but it, I wouldn't say that it re really represents who I am as a musician. Yeah, of it course. It just represented who I, who I was then, mm -hmm. taking an opportunity to do something that was commercial, and it was number one in the classical charts yeah. for four weeks. It's amazing. It was a beautiful project, and I and I understand what you're saying about it. it's not a true reflection of you know you as a, but uh, it was a great opportunity. I mean, I think you even got the opportunity to uh, orchestrate "Shape of My Heart" with a beautiful orchestration. And yeah, uh, well, I mean, it's different. It was, it was beautiful. It was very. And I, nice. you, and I delegated. That was the first time I I kind of delegated really because usually mm -hmm. I like to have total solidarity with what I do. You yeah. know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I'm a bit of a control freak when it comes to my records. I mean, allow me to be. You know, but. This was the first time I had a producer and I had a, a, an arranger, a string arranger. But yeah. I did the kind of basic arrangements. One more. I thought there was, it was a bit string-heavy, personally. It sounded fine without all the arranged strings, but then it wouldn't have been classed as a classical album. Right, and they right. wanted it to, the, the label wanted to market it like a number one, and yeah. it was, and they did. That's beautiful. Yeah. But, you know, I moved on from that. That was a great opportunity, and I had enjoyed a bit of notoriety with it, but... I kind of wanted to move away from that pretty quickly on mm -hmm. what it was done. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, jumping ahead to uh, 2008, you released an album called In a Dream. And on In a Dream, you collaborate with one of our past uh, guests, Kenny Loggins. And, and the, result, yeah. the result, you know, was this kind of a whispery – this track was sort of a whispery, you know, kind of a feel, which was, you know, perfect for what, you know, Loggins brings to the table. And had you – I was curious about how you got connected to Kenny and had, had you uh, – ever worked with him prior to this? No, well, I mean, obviously I'm a huge Kenny Loggins fan, yeah. being a Loggins and Messina fan when they first came out. I yeah. listened to mm -hmm. all their stuff like a fanatic. Mm -hmm. I love that side of American music. Mm -hmm. I really, really do. But, um, no, I mean, that came through a pianist called Peter Cater, mm -hmm. who just called me out of the blue and said, do you want to come and hang out in Hawaii for a, a, just a week? I think I was there seven days. We did the whole thing in a week. Wow. Do you want to come and do an <laughs> album? Just And we'll write it on the spot. And I thought, wow, this guy's really out there. That's cool. So what is it, like sort of new age jazz kind of thing? I thought, well, whatever. <laughs> yeah, if someone wants to fly me out to Hawaii to do an album, you, you know, sign me up. <laughs> right. And um, so I was hanging out, you know. And we did it, and it was just great fun, you know. I mean, uh, no, we did some of it in L.A. and some of it in Hawaii. Uh -huh. That's right. And or in Orange County, I think I can't remember where it was. Right, but 
um, yeah, that was a, a one-off experience. I don't, and there again, I don't think that's really reflective of my compositional style or uh-huh. the way I, I play. Exactly. But it was a kind of, I off-roaded a little bit there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like with some projects, I go off-road, you know, like with the uh, the shapes, and this one was like a detour. Yeah. But it's fun. I like doing that. Well, speaking of Kenny Loggins, uh, let's pause for a quick break and check out Dominic's 2008 collaboration with Peter Cater, which is titled In a Dream, and I want to play a track called Close to You.
You know, on your on your um, next album, which was it, the Fifth House, um, I was listening to that, and you know, this album just brings together, you know, a, first of all, a dream cast of musicians. I mean, once yeah. more, it's uh, you've got you're you're playing a lot more electric guitar. It's uh, and also there's a for me there's a standout track that it just has a beautiful rawness to it. It's called Spirit Level. That oh yeah, I, I just kept on playing that over and over. It was so oh, percussive. Really? I mean, I just it sort of got hooked. You know, you 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 land a track that just grabs you and shakes you. That that's one for me. Spirit level. It oh, was cool. rock. It was bluesy. A lot of feel. Tell me about this track. Maybe this project, Fifth House. Well, I mean, that project was like I think I reached. A, I was on tour at that time when I was writing those tunes, and I was feeling a little bit angsty. I wanted a bit more energy, you know, and I'd never used a cast like that. So I was writing these tunes thinking, okay, I'm writing them for the people that are going to play them. Yeah. So I felt like a kind of film director or almost like a, I was, I was typecasting these for, for the, uh, the cast. I wanted Vinny. I wanted Pino. I wanted Jimmy Johnson, you know, for different reasons. Right. And um, I wanted to get the Les Paul out, you know, and just do, make some fucking noise, you know what I mean? <laughs> and um, so... I wrote with that in mind. And that tune there, I don't know about that tune. It's like a strange kind of upside-down blues. It is. It's really weird. It's yeah. kind of upside-down. What you first hear is dan, 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 dan. It's like right. one dan, dan, dan. It's very dan, hammering dan. at the beginning, yeah. It's upside-down kind of blues. Uh-huh. But I wanted the listener to hear it the other way around. You know, it was just, I'm messing with the listener, <laughs> which I always enjoy doing. And I like I like having my ears messed with. By the way, yeah, yeah. you know, which a lot of great musicians do. It was yeah. so unpredictable, and, uh, especially with tempo and time. Yeah, so I love the the conundrums that you can, the things that you can do with meter and time. It's just always fun for me. So yeah, that one is just is, is basically that. And um, I just said, Benny, let's just go for it, mate. And then at the end, he does something really crazy where he's <laughs> playing seven over eight. I know. He slows it down, but it's. <laughs> Strictly slowed down. Oh, I was like, I was trying to nuts. I was trying to catch the the signatures throughout the whole forget thing, it. and I said, "Forget it." I'm throwing in the towel. I was, <laughs> I was getting ticked it. off. I I'm was like, in the studio thinking, the? "What the hell are you doing?" <laughs> <laughs> and um, he said, "Trust me, it's okay." He said, "I've never done this before," and I thought, "I thought, wow, I'm, we're going to do something that Vinny's never done before." And right. you know, he's played with Zappa and all these people. And I thought, sure. "I'm down with it. Whatever it is, you know, you can whatever you want, mate." Yeah. And then I got my friend to blow a solo on a Moog, and, you know, it's like... Yeah. You know, actually, I was thinking, um, there's a sort of a bit of a uh, Smashing Pumpkins influence there a little bit. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah, I think yeah, so, I can too. see that, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, like there's certain yeah. bands that well, I, I think about their sound, uh-huh. and I was sort of subconsciously probably thinking about their, not their riffs or their music, but more the, the kind of the feel of a Smashing Pumpkins Song, yeah, it was real dry. It's a bit dark. It's a bit like The Cure or something. Or, yeah. You know, or Smashing Pumpkins, two bands that I really like. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, guys, well, let's pause for a second and let's check out this track from Dominic's 2012 solo release, Fifth House. And this is the track Eddie was speaking of called Spirit Level.
Well, uh, Dominic, we appreciate all the time you've, you've spent with us today. And before we go, um, as you know, we've been talking about your solo projects, and you have a new project called Ad Hoc that's going to be released yeah. in February 2014. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, well, this is a new one. I've, I've sort of gone back to playing acoustic, mm-hmm. which I really like. And I, I, we feel, I feel strongly about this one. And, uh, uh, you know, as writing goes and playing goes, I, I don't think I can do any better than this. But mm-hmm. that's what I always say with each record, you mm-hmm. know. Um, yeah, well, I'm really, really excited. The music is back to... Sonically, I'm using the acoustic guitar. Mm-hmm. I'm not playing any electric on it, except one tune where I just play some... Uh, Rhythmic electric. I got, got a great cast again of musicians, and um, and uh, it's just I'm really really excited. I can't wait to get on the road, Good. which I'm going to do in April and May next year, but in Europe. And okay. I would love to come to America. Um, hopefully, you know, we'll make that happen too, and to tour. But I do a lot of touring around Europe and Asia and South America and sure. places like that. And yeah, it seems to work go down really well there, and. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's a, there's, we have one tune up on SoundCloud already, which you can listen to. Right, I heard that one. Yeah, which is called Tizan. So that's a that's a good indication of how sonically what the album is like. Right, I think actually uh, I noticed that was up there, and I think we shared that on our Facebook page. Oh, cool! Thank you very much, mate. No problem. Well, Dominic, thanks so much for your time. This has been an awesome chat. We, we really appreciate it. And uh, sorry about my rambling. No, that, that's that's what we like. We, we like love to talk about music. You know, <laughs> come and great. hang out with me. We'll talk all night, man. There you go, and I love it. <laughs> well, well, we'll definitely keep in touch, and we'll keep our listeners uh, updated on uh, what you're up to, and uh, and of course, when that new album comes out, we'll be sure to uh, remind everyone. Hey, I appreciate it. And say hi to your listeners from me, and I hope I hang out with you guys. That sounds good. Okay, Okay. mate. Thanks so much, Dominic. All the best. All right, right, bye-bye. Cheers, bye. Special thanks to Dominic Miller for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. We'd also like to thank our correspondents, Kim Riley, Brian Pearson, Scott Gross, Max Zape, Mikhail Ingstrom, Uwe Reith, Scott Sheriff, Don Breidup, and Mats Uniland for their continued support and content development for Inside Music Cast. Inside Music Cast is powered by Cabello Associates and Earshot Audio Post. For information about becoming a sponsor and sharing your message with thousands of music fans around the world, please visit InsideMusicCast.com for contact information. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Thanks for listening to Inside Music Cast. <laughs>